0: Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary, Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include the constitutionality of the CFPB, my interview with Kieranos' John Sayer on current data trends in the mortgage industry, and the latest on the Ginny May risk based capital rule. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Richie May, recently named a top 100 firm by Inside Public Accounting. Richie May is a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, cybersecurity, technology, and other services to the mortgage industry. The firm has also consistently been recognized as one of the fastest growing firms in the country and has been named to the Housing Wire Tech 100 and Mortgage Accounting Today Firms to Watch and The Fastest Growing Firms. The firm has also received multiple awards for excellence and firm culture from Inside Public Accounting. To experience how Richie May can help you transform your mortgage business, visit RichieMae.com. Around the world, there's a competition for everything. Eat the most hot dogs, win the World Series. The the best mullet was decided a few days ago. How about economic predictions? The team at the NBA sees volume dropping 9% to about $2 trillion in 2023. Are you ready for more lower volumes. All these forecasters talking about real estate prices going down, what were they predicting about real estate prices at the beginning of 2020? Are there legal competitions? Probably not, but decisions and penalties make headlines, especially when offenders go to prison. There's that decade-long mortgage fraud scheme involving at least two dozen loan transactions totaling $6.5 million that resulted in more than $3.8 million in losses to lenders in Massachusetts, while the Fifth Circuit recently threw a monkey wrench into the CFPB's constitutionality last week in a highly publicized decision. Attorney and Mortgage Musings author Brian Levy discusses the decision and its possible repercussions in detail and offers his own simian analogies. Yep, the CFPB's funding arrangement, not the CFPB itself, has been ruled unconstitutional, according to a federal appeals court. For the link to that story, visit com. Elizabeth Warren's idea for the CFPB was to have it funded by the Federal Reserve, which is outside the purview of Congress, and it would make it impossible for Congress to cut its funding. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome back onto the show Kyrnos' John Sayer to talk about some recent data trends in the mortgage industry. John Sayer is Vice President of Client Success for Kyrnos and has been a secondary marketing and business development professional in the mortgage industry for over 30 years. He's held senior positions at Guardian Mortgage, Caliber Home Loans, and NationStar. He also spent 15 years at Fannie Mae with his last position being Vice President of Single Family Business for the Western United States. We last spoke in April, and a lot has obviously changed since then. What stands out most to you at Kyrnos as you reflect on your benchmarking data in this tumultuous market?
1: Going back a few years, starting right out of college, not knowing any better, um, I became a loan officer for an independent uh, mortgage banker uh, called the Hammond Company. And that was uh, 36 years ago now, which I don't always admit to that. Uh, But mortgage interest rates were definitely over 10% back then. Um, I remember literally having a celebration when rates uh, dipped down to the single digits, down to a 9% handle. And uh, interest rates over those many decades have generally trended down since then, at least up until what we've experienced over the last eight months or so, with that big run up uh, in mortgage rates.
0: 10% rates? That must have been fairly challenging.
1: Uh Yeah, yeah. Uh, similar to now, the goal was really to to tame inflation. And I'm afraid it's going to be a bit of a tougher go this time around. But, you know, when we think about inflation, um, I'll share with you, uh, Robbie, that the GSE, the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan limit back then was 133250 when I got into the business. And uh, many lenders, as you know, uh, recently uh, started quoting a loan limit of about $715,000. Uh, that's about a 500% increase uh, over that uh, period of time. And uh, when we think about loan limits, uh, looking at some of our market data, uh, we've gotten a lot of questions lately around people adopting that 715000 speculative loan limit uh, relative to the current um, uh, limit is six forty and we're seeing uh, some business getting done at the higher that higher number. Uh, but it's really only about two and a half percent of all uh, conforming locks right now are uh, that we're seeing are at that higher uh, prospective loan limit.
0: Remind us your source of data and market intelligence.
1: Sure, uh, just to make sure everybody knows where we're coming from in terms of the the data we collect, Robbie. At, uh, here at Curanos, which Kurinos, uh just as a refresher, is a new brand for us. We were previously known as Icon and then a combination with Informa Financial Intelligence and, and most recently Novantis. So Curanos is the new brand. Uh, every week we collect uh, real-time loan information data directly from our clients, their applications, rate locks, and funded loans right out of their loan origination systems. And that's from a broad spectrum of lenders, large and small, uh, credit unions, mortgage banks, independent mortgage bankers. And uh, we, we track about half of all first lien and second lien loan originations across the country. So a pretty significant data sample. About 500 lenders participate in our rate surveys across all different mortgage channels and in addition to home equity and actually other consumer lending products as well. Uh, as we all know, uh, the news has not been good uh, lately in the mortgage space. Uh, really, the insult to injury uh, that we've seen uh, with refinances contracting, the insult to injury has been that purchase transactions, unfortunately, have contracted uh, quite a bit as well.
0: Is there any good news? Is there a silver lining to be shared? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would say so. Um, although it really, uh, Robbie, mostly applies to those lenders who offer home equity loans and lines of credit. Um, In addition to working with our clients uh, where we track loan origination data for mortgages, we also do that for home equity loans, uh, along with small business and unsecured lending. Uh, All three loan types have experienced significant year-over-year growth. Um, We really have a unique view into the home equity space, which we're, we're pretty excited about. Uh, in that we collect the origination data, both the apt and funded loan information, uh, as well as monthly servicing data. Uh, so, home equity servicing data. So, we can share all kinds of perspectives with you today around both origination trends and servicing data, like home equity lines of credit utilization rates and, and delinquency rates.
0: Yeah, let's get into it. Clearly everything lines up for home equity lending. Homeowners are sitting on low first mortgage rates. They have tons of equity. What stands out on the origination side?
1: Well, the headline, the the big headline number is 50%. Uh we're observing home equity lending um 50%, five, zero percent growth year to date this year, 2022, versus the same period in 2021. In fact, at this, at this current rent, rent, uh, rent rate that we're looking at now uh, through the balance of the year, we think that 2022 will be the largest home equity origination year since 2017.
0: How does the volume break down by HELOC and loans?
1: Well, uh, most of the growth is, is in volume is predominantly in lines of credit. Uh, About 85 to 90% of the home equity loans being originated are lines of credit, with the remainder being closed-end seconds, closed-end loans, term loans. Uh, Home equity uh, closed-end lines of credit uh, seem to be actually contracting just a little bit uh, with almost all the growth being in uh, lines of credit. Uh, There's definitely uh, a lot of different ways to look at the data, Uh, an interesting delineation uh, we take a look at is the business channel, um, the source of of that business, either being uh, through originations in that centralized model, which is that direct to consumer model, or a decentralized model, which is that that branch environment. And I think it's interesting, but probably not very surprising, given you know the, the post pandemic uh, post pandemic realities that we're dealing with that we saw greater growth in the centralized channel originations. That's the online or call center type applications. Uh, Last month, we saw about 62% of the home equity loans and lines were originated in that centralized direct-to-consumer channel.
0: Let's shift to interest rates. Give us a sense of predominant rates for home equity loans and how those compare to first mortgages.
1: Uh, absolutely. So we know with uh, 30-year fixed rate mortgages conforming rates right now are running about six and five-eighths or so. Um, Arm loans running maybe about five and a half percent, uh, just you know, roughly speaking. Home equity loans are not immune uh, to rates going up. Uh, I shared with you uh, that I, I recently took out a home equity loan uh, just a couple months ago, and it was at four percent. What we're looking at right now in the la- latest week is the applications coming in at about 7%. Um, so home equity loans, uh, lines of credit around 7%, home equity loans around, call it 8%. So big picture, when you think of home equity lines and loans, just think of them about a half a percent to one and a half percent higher than first mortgage rates.
0: What are you seeing on the competitive landscape?
1: You know, it's an interesting question. We're we're certainly seeing a few developments of note. Um, you know, first, I think it's important to share that uh, the, that a number of home equity lenders, both banks and credit unions, really hit the pause button during the pandemic. And really, two reasons for that: first, borrowers were favoring refinancing of their first mortgages, uh, taking advantage of those low three percent to high percent rates, and taking out cash out as needed with those refinances of the first mortgage. Uh, the borrower economics uh, were generally not there for home equity loans, really at all. Uh, second, uh, lenders were uh, operationally challenged um, on first mortgages, and in in many instances redeployed those resources away from home equity lending into first mortgage lending. You know, really hitting that bottleneck of uh, first mortgage okay. refinances. Today, uh, we're seeing a dramatic, you know, market shift. Uh, we're obviously with. Ah uh, refinances uh, contracting. We're seeing a steady reentry of many of those lenders back into home equity lending. Secondly, uh, you know we're seeing uh, in terms of developments, we're seeing many new entrants come into the market. Uh, we've seen press releases. I'm sure you have, and and uh, the reports uh, uh, documented many of those um, lenders, such as Guaranteed Loan Depot, Rocket, and others, working to you know craft the code for home equity lending. Uh, To me, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if a securitization market can develop around that uh, asset or whether, you know, loans will find their way into, um, you know, banker balance sheets.
0: Do you think non-banks will be successful in home equity lending?
1: I think so, but, you know, perhaps in a a different way. Uh, Many lenders um, are finding success using alternative financing products such as unsecured lending. Uh, fintechs uh, predominantly are serving uh, consumers They are looking for a quicker and more convenient access to cash rather than going through a full real estate loan process. Uh, we are seeing banks and credit unions take about 60 days to close a home equity loan, uh, 55, 60 days. Uh, fintechs are closing unsecured loans in about a week. Uh, but, of course, their rates are much higher and very considerably uh, well into the double digit range. Uh, My anticipation is that new entrants that we talked about um, just a while ago uh, into the home equity space are going to work to arbitrage, if you will, that long market processing time by simplifying the lending process and trying to capture a market premium along the way in doing so. uh, Convenience has a price, right?
0: It does. Any other data points of interest you'd like to share?
1: Sure. You know, I think um, those that are close to the home equity um, market know this well, but I would share uh, with you that um, the biggest conundrum really in home equity lending relates to lines of credit and that borrowers that use the line of credit the least are those that are the least risky borrowers. So think of homeowners with very high credit, very low combined loan values, they really aren't using their lines hardly at all. They're almost like convenience loans. They're there if you need it. And of course, that doesn't bode well for profitability for a lender that has that loan on the books because it's not being used. And then you have lower credit and higher CLTV borrowers that represent a riskier credit profile. But of course, then they utilize the liens the most because they need the funds. So you've got this uh, contradiction where you know something like 80% of the home equity loans are going to borrowers with a credit score over 740, but they're only using about 28% of the line amount. Borrowers with lower credit scores in that, say, 700 to 739 range, you know, decent credit, but, you know, a low, little lower down the spectrum, they use their line significantly more, over 40% usage. And then if you get under 700, you start to find borrowers. With really high utilization rates, but of course they're the riskiest borrowers. So, you know, Robbie. In conclusion, I I would just share with you again that we spend a considerable amount of time with our clients helping them understand the trade-offs between risk and u- loan utilization uh, for those home equity lines of credit. Really trying to find the sweet spot for their lending. I think uh, also many folks uh, may be wondering, uh, given that this is second lien predominantly second lien lending uh, what's going on with delinquencies and uh, you know the canary in the coal mine thing and I would share with you you know some good news there. Um, there is some um, modest increase uh, in um, delinquencies I would say at the lowest credit score band uh, but really pretty historically steady and unremarkable so I, I think that's uh, very important. As we think about the economy going forward and so forth, keeping a close eye on delinquencies. Uh, obviously, everybody's um, uh, highly um, uh, focused there, uh, as are we.
0: Insightful as always, John. Thank you for making the time.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Ginny May extended the mandatory implementation date of the risk based capital requirement to December 31st, 2024. All other aspects of the minimum financial requirements will remain the same. The risk-based capital requirement is part of a larger set of financial eligibility guidelines released simultaneously with FHFA requirements on August 17, 2022. The RBC requirement is an important component of measuring risk, designed to strengthen and bolster the issuers that support the government mortgage market. Ginny May's issuer eligibility requirements were first published on August 17th, in APM 2022-09, through a joint announcement with the FHFA of amended minimum financial requirements for independent mortgage bank issuers in government securitization guarantee programs. What's going on out there? There's some weakening in the economy, household balance sheets are strong, the job market is strong, and inflation has moved from transitory to persistent. Most indications point to the demand for housing still being solid and inventory gradually increasing. Most U.S. Treasury benchmark yields hit the highest levels since 2007 to close last week as inflation and uncertainty over the terminal Fed funds rate continue to scare the bond markets. Higher rates will start a chain reaction of less investment, less economic growth, less demand, and ultimately less inflation. Closer to home, the housing market isn't good for buyers and sellers right now. Housing continues to be the most affected by the Fed's aggressive monetary stance, and the National Association of Home Builders Housing Market Index fell to its lowest level since 2012 in October, as expectations for sales and buyer traffic fell. Looking back over the past year, building permits for multifamily housing are up 25.5%, while permits for single family homes are 17.3% lower. There is some hope that as those new multifamily units come online, upwards price pressure on rents will begin to subside. Existing home sales fell month over month for the eighth consecutive month to an annual pace of 4.71 million units as mortgage rates hovered near the 7% range. Due to limited supply, however, nearly one quarter of homes are still selling above list price and the average sales price continued its streak of 127 consecutive months of year-over-year increases. Last week's economic data showed industrial production increased higher than expected in September and capacity utilization slightly above the long term average, both of which will continue to add inflationary pressure to the economy along with continued low unemployment claims. This last full week of October includes $144 billion in month end supply tomorrow through Thursday. Notable economic releases include PMI October flashes, the first look at Q3 GDP, and September PCE. Fed officials have entered their blackout period ahead of next week's FOMC decision, though the ECB will be out with its latest decision on Thursday. Kicking off the week was the Chicago Fed National Activity Index for September, and later brings preliminary October SP Global PMIs, and Class D 48 hours for MBS is today. We begin the week with agency MBS prices roughly unchanged, and the 10-year yielding 4.20 after closing last week at 4.21%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. With one week until the big night, when does a ghost have breakfast? In the moaning. <laughs> what a ghost drink at breakfast? Coffee with scream and sugar. And where does a ghost go on vacation? Malibu. <laughs> where does a ghost go on a Saturday night? Anywhere he can boogie. Where did the ghost get its hair done? At the booty shop. (laughs) Here's a riddle. The maker does not want. The buyer does not use it. And the user does not see it. What is it? A coffin. (laughs) What do they teach in witching school? Spelling. Duh. Why does a witch ride a broom? Vacuum cleaners get stuck at the end of the cord. Okay, what do you call a witch's garage? A broom closet. And what do you call two witches living together? Broom mates. (laughs) And what do you get when you goose a ghost? A handful of sheep. (laughs) Thanks again to Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit ritchiemay.com. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at Robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit RobCrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.